In May 2020, a nine-minute video of police officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck until he died of asphyxiation was shared around the world. The video sparked a political movement. Yesterday, in a court in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed, Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murder. It was a result which led to relief across much of black America, principally due to the rarity of white officers getting convicted for such crimes. But the emotional impact of that court case, like the murder itself, has spread far beyond the US. To discuss what the George Floyd trial says about race in America and the relevance of the case here in the UK, I'll be speaking to two expert guests on both sides of the Atlantic, Maurice B.P. Weeks and Adam Elliott Cooper. I'm also joined throughout the show tonight by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing all right. I'm really excited for this show. We have some incredible guests um, for some really much needed ana analysis immediately after this historic court case. So I'm just as excited as everyone else is to watch how this show unfolds. And I'll chip in a bit, but I I'm just really excited to, to even just be a, a viewer. <laughs> yeah, you can be much more than a viewer today. <laughs> um, we are also spoiling you tonight because you're also going to get some bonus time with Aaron Bastani. Um, he'll be joining us for the second half of the show to discuss the epic collapse of the European Super League. It really is a story that has everything. So do make sure you stay tuned for that. Now, the George Floyd trial, like the murder itself, was beamed to millions of viewers across America and across the world. For George Floyd's family, the emotion was one of relief, but that relief also came alongside a commitment to keep on fighting and an appreciation of the political movement that led to Chauvin's conviction. This is George Floyd's brother, Philanise Floyd, on hearing the verdict. It's been a long journey and it's been less than a year. And the person that comes to my mind is 1955. And to me, he was the first George Floyd. That was, that was Emma Till. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I did, uh, was on CNN with Deborah Watts and she just brought him back to life. People forgot about him. Yeah. But he was the first George Floyd. But today you have the cameras all around the world to see and show what happened to my brother. It was a motion picture, the world seeing his life being extinguished. And I could do nothing but watch, especially in that courtroom over and over and over again as my brother was murdered. Times, they're getting harder every day. 10 miles away from here, Mr. Wright, Dante Wright, he should still be here. We have to always understand that we have to march. We will have to do this for life. We have to protest because it seems like this is a never-ending cycle. Reverend Al always told me, we got to keep fighting. I'm going to put up a fight every day because I'm not just fighting for George anymore. I'm fighting for everybody around this world. Yeah. I get calls. I get DMs. People from Brazil, from Ghana, from Germany, everybody, London, Italy, they're all saying the same thing. 
we won't be able to breathe until you're able to breathe. Today, we are able to breathe again. Incredibly powerful speech from Philanise Floyd there. Now, for, for context, Emmett Till was, was a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. And Dante Wright was a 20-year-old black man killed by police six days ago after a routine traffic stop. So you could see there George Floyd's brother clearly putting that murder in the context of a history of, of violence by police officers against black men in, in America. To discuss the impact of this verdict on racial justice in America, I'm now joined by Maurice B.P. Weeks, who is director of ACRE, a group dedicated to campaigning for racial and economic justice in America. Thank you so much for, for joining us on tonight's show, Maurice. Yeah, good to be here. In that clip we just showed, Philanise Floyd said, today we are able to breathe again. Now, he didn't say that to say, yeah, now's the time to relax, but he was saying this: there is a moment of relief here. Is that something that's being felt across the U.S. today? You know, I, th I think that, um, you know, this is such a rare occasion where we have a police officer who's uh, murdered a black person in cold blood, which we, you know, it seems like we see um, almost every week these days, um, be held accountable for, for that crime by the justice, the same justice system that employs him. Um, but I use that word accountability and I, do, I don't use the word justice for a reason we know that uh, just convicting this officer is not the end goal. And we know that the system that we're up against will, you know, offer up different, uh, different people as um, little kernels that never quite add up to the justice that we're looking for. And the justice is, you know, that, that George Floyd should still be here and that we shouldn't have to deal with these police murders at all. So I, I think that there is, you know, a, a wave of shock that's going through people's system that, you know, we saw something that um, even in previous cases where we've, we've had, you know, concrete evidence of, of police murder, we haven't seen convictions. There's a bit of shock in actually seeing one um, and, and seeing uh, the judge read out the, those uh, three counts. But, you know, we have so, so, so much further to go until we get to anything that resembles real justice for the Floyd family or, uh, you know, for any black Americans. That horrific video, nine minute video of George Floyd getting killed. I mean, the image that put across to the world about the institutions of America was one that was brutal, that was racist, that was horrific. What does this court case tell us about America and how it, how it functions at, at this point? I mean, a, a couple of things I suppose stood out for me from it was that you did have the the chief of police who was uh, a witness for the for the prosecution who was essentially saying you should prosecute this this police officer my police officer at the same time he's the leader of the same police force who when that murder took place released uh, a press release which was basically saying oh th there was a medical accident not much happened you know what have we learned from the trial uh, about america and about policing in america yeah, no, I think one of the main things that we, we can take away from it is, you know, there, there was a tremendous amount of evidence in this trial. You had the, the, you know, the full nine minute video. Um, as, uh, the murder was happening and surrounded by crowds, you had many, many, many witnesses. And I don't think that there's any question, certainly not in my mind, that if you didn't have that video, there's absolutely no way uh, that Officer Chauvin would have been convicted on three counts of murder. I think even furthermore, um, I'm not sure if it happens without the global movement that was sparked by, by the murder. 
that should say a lot about uh, what our what our justice system needs to prov to provide just one single small kernel of accountability towards itself, a global movement and a full murder caught on video. And I think, you know, for, for me and several of my friends, I know we were still shocked even after seeing all of that overwhelming evidence uh, because we know that the system's just not made to provide those types of outcomes. So, you know, like I said, I, I, I think that there's a long way to go until we get to any sort of justice, certainly a, a, a just justice system that can make sure that black people in America are allowed to, to live and thrive like, uh, like, like we should. And, you know, I think that it, there's been a really clear rallying cry for defunding uh, the police here in America. This is such a good example of why that needs to happen. We just cannot rely on this institution to keep us safe. I, th I think that that's the, 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 where the momentum is carrying and that's where we're going. What many people would say is, look, what we need is, is body cams. If you you look at this situation, it actually could serve as a bit of a deterrent because, yes, I, I think, as you said, if the, if the video camera wasn't there or the, the mobile phone wasn't there, this, this person wouldn't have been convicted. But at the same time, because everyone has mobile phones now, maybe the police will think twice before they behave in such a brutal a brutal manner. You don't think that's enough. You think something more more radical. No, I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely has to be something more proactive. I mean, look, the as the that verdict was being read um, in Columbus, uh, you know, also in the Midwest in the United States, a young girl was being murdered by the police. There was video of that as well. And I will say, this isn't the first police murder that was caught on video that was very obvious and egregious, and that hasn't stopped those murders from from happening. Just having one person locked away when we know that this entire system, uh, you know, targets black people um, and torments black people is really, really not enough. That's not the justice that we, that we need. And the real justice would be, you know, a radical reimagination of what safety is. Um, and the only way that we get there is by uh, defunding the police and rethinking what that is. I want to bring in Adam Elliott Cooper, who's an academic at the University of Greenwich and author of Black Resistance to British Policing, to talk about the UK angle on this. Thanks so much for, for joining us, Adam. I mean, I wasn't surprised, but it was quite striking to me how much this court case in America resonated with so many of the people I follow on, on Twitter. You know, really, you know, reactions which showed how emotionally invested people were in this case. And way more so than I think almost, you know, any other international story I can think of. I'm, I'm sure there are a few we can think of. But, you know, it, it seems quite rare for people to be on such tenterhooks for the result of a court case in another country. Why do you think this is something that has cut through so much here? I think there are probably two or three reasons. I think the first, of course, is that we didn't simply all watch George Floyd die. We watched George Floyd being tortured to death, effectively. So George Floyd's death was, I think I would argue potentially one of the most watched lynchings in human history. It's very, very difficult to not be moved um, and pained by that footage. So I think that's the first thing. But I think the second thing is that it's also, of course, come in a wider context of far-right and racist nationalism, whether it be the Trump administration that was in power in the United States or, of course, the Boris governments here in the United Kingdom. So again, I think people were angry in that wider political context. I think thirdly, of course, people were angry about this lockdown. Um, and I think that, I think the combination um, of the, um, the mismanagement of dealing with this current pandemic, as well as the wider context of uh, far-right um, nationalist governments, 
across uh, Britain and the United States, I think bolstered uh, the anger and rage which emerged from the rebellions against uh, George Floyd's murder in the summer of last year. There seemed to be a relief from people in this country about the verdict in this court case. And I suppose, is that because people feel like these things will now get taken more seriously in this country? Or is that just, you know, solidarity? That's just a, a relief felt for comrades in, in the United States? I just want to echo a lot of the things that were said already. I mean, I don't think that even Minneapolis or America could have survived um, any different outcome. I think that the Minneapolis police have sacrificed one officer um, in order to save the whole institution. And I think that if the verdicts went any other way, then the United States would have another summer of black rebellion that it wouldn't be able to handle. But I think the other thing, of course, is that we've seen people like Sajid Javid and others um, really proclaiming and being very pleased with this particular outcome. And I think that's because they hope that people will um, invest their time and energy into assuming the criminal justice system will become a self-regulating body. And we know that that isn't the case either. And so I think that it's incumbent upon us to continue to argue the same kinds of demands and platforms that were popularised in the summer of 2020, that we need to dismantle the criminal justice and policing system and border regime as we know it, and produce and create something different, something that provides care and safety from the grassroots and within our communities. I want to take a look at some of the political responses um, in in America. You mentioned Sajid Javid. We'll probably go to him a little later. It was quite a ridiculous response compared to what he said in the past. Another ridiculous response was this um, from the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How How heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you... And because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. That was clearly a mind-blowingly inappropriate and offensive response to the verdict. George Floyd did not sacrifice his life. He didn't go to war to fight for a cause. He was murdered in cold blood. That the whole 30 seconds I found just incredibly bizarre. Joe Biden, the president, uh, made a statement that was slightly better received. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. There was systemic racism that's a stain on our nation's soul. <clears throat> the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans profound fear and trauma, the pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. The murder of George Floyd launched a summer of protest we hadn't seen since the civil rights era in the 60s. Protests that unified people of every race and generation in peace and with purpose to say enough, enough, enough of this senseless killings. Today, today's verdict is a step forward. I just spoke with the governor of Minnesota who thanked me for the close work with his team. And I also spoke with George Floyd's family again. Remarkable family of extraordinary courage. Nothing can ever bring their brother, their father back. But 
This can be a giant step forward in the march toward justice in America. I mean, it's easy to forget how recently that speech would have been given by Donald Trump and would have sounded incredibly different. Um, Maurice, I want to bring you in on that because, I mean, Joe Biden, I mean, I think as many of our viewers will know, doesn't have a, a brilliant record when it comes to race relations in America. But to see a political leader stand up there and talk about systemic racism seems somewhat significant. I mean, what did you make of, of that speech from Joe Biden? Do you think he's serious about this? Is it even if he's not, is it relevant that he feels he has to say these things? How would you respond to what you said there? Well, you know, I, th I think that, as you mentioned, the president has a really long history in his political career of being on the wrong side of criminal justice issues and was one of the architects of the bill that led to the mass uh, incarceration and, and destructive policing that we see in America today. So I, I don't take those comments very seriously at all. I mean, he mentioned... Uh, you know, the, the protest being such a great thing. I didn't hear him say that or commit to not sending the National Guard or other military force into cities uh, when inevitably, inevitably, these protests will happen again. And we know that he will. We know that he'll, he'll, um, he'll certainly approve of that um, because it's just, uh, yeah, those were, those were empty words. Um, you know, we saw before that uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, which, um, you know, with a totally ridiculous statement. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that her pushing forward a policing act, the George Floyd Policing Act, which not a single thing in that act would have actually acted to save George Floyd's life himself is really a good summation of what, you know, mainstream Democratic leaders have to offer for us uh, in this moment. Lots of lip service and no real action, no commitment to actually looking at the nature of policing, uh, incarceration, and criminalization of black and brown people in this country, um, and uh, upending it and changing it for the better. You know, there were this trial lasted for 23 days. In that time period, the police killed 32 black and brown people across the country. In just 23 days, while this trial was going on, 32 black and brown people were killed across the country. This is a systemic issue that needs more than just politicians draping themselves in kente cloth or making empty statements about how they talk to a particular person's family. It needs real action. And unfortunately, we don't have the leaders that take that seriously at the moment. I want to bring up um, a couple of tweets from Sajid Javid. Um, so he's the former chancellor of, of, of this country. Um, in response to the verdict, he tweeted, Justice, Black Lives Matter, RIP George Floyd. And immediately after tweeting that, everyone very quite rightly mocked him because last year he'd said that Black Lives Matter was not a force for good. Um, so as, as has been discussed on tonight's show, it's pretty inarguable that one of the reasons why um, at least accountability has happened here is because of public pressure, popular pressure from below. That's the kind of thing that the politicians such as Sajid Javid would have opposed or did oppose um, at the time. Um, Adam, I want to know from you how you think I suppose the politics of race compares in this country to the United States, because, I mean, obviously on a very basic level, less black people get killed by the police in this in this country. We have a less violent police force. At the same time, I mean, our prime minister is not going to stand up and talk about structural racism. He's just commissioned a report whose sole purpose, it seemed, was to say that there is no systemic racism in, in this country. Do you think on, on some levels Britain's actually behind America on race? So I think in some ways, uh, Britain and America are kind of similar. So in that video we saw of Joe Biden, he described racism as a stain on the nation's soul. And of course, it isn't a stain on the nation's soul. 
it is the nation's soul. It is a nation which was founded on the uh, settler colonialism and the genocide of indigenous peoples and, of course, chattel slavery and a whole swathe of other forms of racialized governance. And, and there's never been a break in that, um, in racism being a fundamental part of American power, both nationally um, and its foreign policy. And so, therefore, it's also inaccurate of, I think, the US presidents to describe these killings as senseless. They're not senseless. They're a very integral part of American governance. And I think we could say similar things about Britain. Britain would say that um, if racism does exist, it's a stain on the British nation, which is generally quite tolerant. And of course, that isn't true either. Uh, Britain is a nation um, founded in 1707 on empire and imperialism and all of the kind of racial governance that comes with it. And, again, and similarly, that when black and brown people are killed in this country, you should also understand them as not being senseless, but part of a wider system of racial control, discipline and violence. But I think the differences between the United States and Britain are important because while both Britain and the United States, of course, incarcerate black people at the same, at, at very, very similar rates, almost identical rates to each other. And while we don't see as many black people dying at the hands of the police, we do see similar forms of um, disproportionate policing um, when it comes to black communities. I think one of the key differences are on the one, on, are on the one hand, of course, this history of anti-racism. So whilst America, on the American mainland, you have this very long history of anti-racism that goes back centuries, much of Britain's anti-racist history hasn't taken place on the British mainland. It's taken place in its colonies, um, in the Caribbean, across the African continent, across South Asia, and what have you. And so it's been very easy for Britain to pretend that, the, uh, but, that both racism and anti-racism are something very new to Britain. And it's a language and a problem um, which it's only really uh, coming to grips with, when in fact um, that history goes back far further, but because of Britain's uh, kind of colonial amnesia, it hasn't really, there's definitely a, a lack of memory in that regard. And while we could go into details about, you know, the extent to which British police are armed or in the differences between um, how police forces are funded and all of these different types of things, I think what's really crucial is the fact that when people saw the police killing in the United States, they saw very similar kinds of patterns here in Britain. And the big slogans that we saw in the protests of the summer of 2020 in cities and towns across um, the United Kingdom was the UK is not innocent. And that isn't simply because they wanted to shine a light on the problems that are taking place in Britain, but because the UK continuously projects itself to the rest of the world as being innocent. And it was a really vital correction to uh, this uh, self-perception and this uh, self-image that Britain projects around the world. And, and I think that, that correction was even more vivid with the attacks on statues like Colston in Bristol, which, which forced Britain to face up to those histories of, of racial slavery, which it too often likes to pretend happened far away to people that it's got nothing to do with. Adam Elliott Cooper, thank you so much for, for joining us um, this evening. Incredibly insightful as, as ever. We'd love to get you back on soon as well. Thank you. Maurice, I just want, I know we've got to let you go as well. I just want super quickly to ask, where is the state of, of the defund the police movement in, in the United States? I've heard you mention it a, a couple of times. Where is that particular demand going right now in America? I think this is just the beginning of the defund the police movement. Um, and I, th I think that, uh, you know, as more people get introduced to the politics of abolition and the fact that we can imagine a future without the police, 
um, defund the police is really going to be um, sort of the baseline of what 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 it means to be um, to have left politics in in America. So um, I know my organization is working with folks in several different uh, states and cities around the country who are are planning campaigns and thinking about it. I know that uh, comrades like Miriam Kaba are, are writing about it and um, there's lots of other popular literature about it. I think we're just at the beginning and uh, it's really the only uh, uh, the only step that is gonna make sense um, in terms of really structurally changing the nature uh, of how um, the state interacts with black people in this country. Super interesting. An issue I'm sure we'll be coming back to, to very soon. Maurice BP Weeks, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Dahlia, I want to bring you in, especially, I suppose, on, on how you think this is, this is viewed from, from this country. I mean, I, I was really taken aback by, you know, how much relief people seem to feel in this country because of a court case in America. You know, people really, really related to this case felt it so closely to themselves. I mean, how did you respond to this verdict? I mean, the reason that it resonated so strongly, I think, is because in the UK, despite there being over 1,500 deaths in police custody in the past 30 years, we haven't had a single conviction of a police officer in any of those deaths. So, you know, we have barely seen extensive investigations into these deaths to find out actually what happened. Um, so it resonates very strongly here because it is a reality in the UK um, as well as in the US. And, you know, we often think that as was mentioned earlier, because police officers here are generally not as heavily armed as police officers in the US, and that that's somehow not a problem here, but police police don't need a gun um, to kill people and get away with it. But I also think it resonates here, actually, because we are on the precipice of the police crime and sentencing bill being passed, which not only dramatically expands police powers and expands the remit of behaviors that are criminalized. You know, a lot of that focus has been on the right to protest, but there's so much else hidden in that bill that increases the presence and the intensity of policing in people's lives, especially people who are obviously working class, who are migrants, who are black and brown. For example, the police, the bill includes um, an expansion of the relationship between schooling and policing, again, much more closely to, to the model in the US which we know from the work done by organizations like No More Exclusions, like Forefront, that that relationship between policing and schooling is not only an incredibly harmful and destructive practice, um, and, and it's a racist practice, um, but it's incredibly, it, it's part of that school to prison pipeline that condemns so many people to further incarceration and further criminalization. But also I think because while we often focus on the injustices of policing um, when an event like this happens, you know, so when someone has died and particularly when there is video footage, um, that's often where we see the most heavy scrutiny of the police. And obviously that makes sense because it's horrific and it deserves attention. But we also have to remember that the injustice and the harm that is caused by policing in our communities happens at so many different scales and the sense that police can sort of come into your community, come into your neighborhood, do what they want with the full power of the state behind them is not limited to these particular instances. They are an everyday occurrence, um, you know, from being stopped and searched to poor neighborhoods being excessively policed to people in mental health crises being responded to with handcuffs and being, you know, hauled into the back of a police van to, you know, 
kids who are just either behaving as a kid or have, you know, learning difficulties or mental health difficulties being faced with, you know, punishment and, and sort of a form of pseudo criminalization. And these are all ways in which the police harm people, traumatize people, affect, shape their, their lives um, in very negative ways. And that's the stuff that you know, is totally above board police practice. You know, you can't prosecute for that because it's part of the police handbook. It's actually part of the way that policing exists. And so that's why we feel so connected to things that happen across the pond, because the issue of police being presented and understood as an institution that confers safety and protection, and yet is a source of fear and harm for so many, is something that we all feel. Um, but obviously, um, and I wanted to kind of comment specifically on, on, on this case and what it means for kind of the broader, broader anti-racist movements, um, and the broader kind of mobilizations that we're seeing around criminal justice. You know, obviously it's not, not a secret. I'm a prison abolitionist. I don't think that the criminal justice system, that policing and prisons are an effective or a humane way of dealing with and preventing social harm. I think it actually create, tends to create more social harm than, than what it solves or present, prevents. So naturally, in many ways, I don't see this as justice being served because justice being served, as Maurice mentioned, would be George Floyd being alive today. It would be black and brown people being able to exist in their lives without fear that something similar could be done to them. And, you know, Within hours of this verdict, we had yet another instance of a 16-year-old girl, um, Makaya Bryant, getting shot dead by a police officer. So clearly justice is not actually happening. Um, I'm not even sure if it's even as, as far as accountability. But what it is, I think, and the reason why this is so powerful is because it is recognition. And that is small, but it's very powerful because for so many years in the UK and in the US, Instances of black people being killed by the police or being harmed or being mistreated by the police either hasn't been going to trial or it went to trial and police were found to do nothing wrong. And the message that that sends is that violence experienced by black and brown people at the hands of the police is not considered violence. Um, it, is it is merely necessary force used against the population that have to be contained and, you know, whom who are treated with contempt by, by our system. And this conviction was merely recognition that violence occurred, that what happened was not justified. It was not, so it should not be run of the mill, that it was violence and it was harm. And that's why even as a prison abolitionist, even as someone who can see how this problem is not going to be solved in the courts, I cried when I heard that verdict. It was incredibly emotional. It was incredibly powerful because that recognition, while so simple, is the first step towards something more profound. And it took so long to get there. You know, having this kind of act recognizes violence even just one time. And I think that Adam and Maurice are completely right that in many ways this was a calculation to sort of sacrifice one officer to save the institution. Um, but this moment was not handed down benevolently by the courts. It was fought for tooth and nail. It took a lot of work and organizing to just get this case in the courts. Um, and, you know, not to mention the years of organizing that have happened for generations now um, to kind of get to the position where we realize that this is something that needs to be taken seriously. 
Um, but for all the reasons that I mentioned before, it is very important that we don't let this demobilize us in our demands for transforming our criminal justice system, for abolishing our criminal justice system and replacing it with something, with a system that is focused on care and accountability. Because just prosecuting police isn't going to change a system that is predicated upon detaining and disenfranchising and repressing black and brown working class people overall. Um, so I think, I hope that kind of explains a little bit why we can be like super critical of, of actually the implications of this and be modest about our understanding of what this means while also understanding why it was so powerful and why it had such a, which for many of us, maybe we didn't even predict that it would have such an, a, a big powerful, such a powerful implication, but might go a bit of a way to explain why, why it did. We'll have to find time on a future show to properly have it out on this issue of abolition versus reform because we're definitely in different camps there. Um, but uh, we probably should move on at this point. I thought your point about recognition, though, I completely agree with you there, essentially. After only 48 hours since coming into existence, the European Super League collapsed. The plan to create the breakaway European Championship had been concocted by billionaire club owners who assumed they held all the cards and who believed that by acting unilaterally, they could force the hands of the football association who opposed the move. How wrong they were and how pathetically incompetent they all now seem. Let's take a quick look at the sequence of events that led to this most dramatic of unravelings. So on Sunday at midnight, the Super League was announced with no PR, no public appearance from anyone defending it, just a statement by three teams, each from Spain and Italy and Liverpool, Man United, Man City, Chelsea, Tottenham and Arsenal. No one came out, as I said, no one came out to defend this, just a few tweets from a few clubs. However, while the owners supporting the plan were silent, the opponents of the Super League were not. By Monday morning, as we discussed on Monday's show, politicians, pundits and fan groups all came out against the Super League. And by the evening, it was the turn of the teams themselves. Live on Sky News after their game against Leeds, Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp and vice-captain James Milner were the first to express their opposition to the Super League. Jurgen, not too long ago, you said you hoped there wouldn't be a Super League. What are your, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings today? Didn't change. Didn't change since that. My feelings, my, my my opinion, didn't change. Can I only say my personal opinion? I don't. I don't like it, and you know, hopefully, it doesn't happen. Why don't you like it? What is it? What is it? For the same reasons as everyone else has been talking out over the last day. Obviously, it's been difficult for us with with our only game. Um, we're trying to prepare on the game, mm. um, but um, I can only imagine what's been said about it, um, and probably agree with most of it. On Tuesday, it was the turn of Chelsea's owners to hear the disquiet among the team and fans. Here's goalkeeper Petr Cech pleading with fans who had blockaded the team coach from entering the stand. Peter Cech there was saying, give us time, pleading with the fans, give us time for us to sort this out. And the fans didn't need to wait long before that evening's match kicked off. It was revealed Chelsea were preparing documentation to leave the Super League. And the BBC Sports editor tweeted, I understand Chelsea are now preparing documentation to request withdrawing from the European Super League. And once 
um, one domino fell, they all began to collapse because not long after that, Manchester City followed suit and then all six of the English teams had quit by midnight. As an example of the statements that came out, Arsenal tweeted, As a result of listening to you and the wider football community over recent days, we are withdrawing from the proposed Super League. We made a mistake and we apologise for it. Most dramatic on on Tuesday evening was that Manchester United's withdrawal came alongside the news that their chairman would resign with immediate effect, would would have been due to resign at the end of the year, but the controversy over the Super League meant that decision was brought forward. Um, So a a remarkable unravelling. Aaron, I want to know, were you surprised at how quickly this whole thing fell apart? I think everybody thought it would last longer, with the exception of you. I mean, I think, you know, your take was, your Insta analysis was, this won't work. But what, what we knew on the night when the sort of story broke, which is on Sunday, was that contracts had been signed, that, you know, people were now in for a penny and for a pound. So you think, well, th- there is no going back. And there's precedent there. You know, in the Champions League, which is, you know, the present elite competition amongst European football clubs, that was founded in a similar-ish way. It was expanded beyond just the winners of domestic leagues. That happened in a similar-ish way, right? So you can see how unilaterally the biggest clubs try and take the game in a certain direction, but it's never been done like this, this unilaterally, with no consultation with players, with fans, with associations, UEFA, FIFA, the FA, nobody. Nobody knew about this. There was there was a kind of double feeling, right? On the one hand, well, people have signed documents. On the other hand, wow, we've never seen anything like this. How the hell can this go through? I didn't think it would fall apart in 72 hours, though, no. Well, what seemed so surprising, I suppose, is because, you know, on Monday when I had Ash on the show, we were talking about there's, you know, some game theory going on here. Who's going to fold first? Presumably, I assumed they wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have launched the European Super League unless they put mm. in place the steps which would allow for it to happen. Because, yes... Yeah. You know, there have been dramatic developments since the announcement on Sunday, but they could kind of all have been predicted. None of them were surprising, but they, you know, they seemingly hadn't foreseen any of them. I, I don't understand what they expected to happen that would have been different from what actually did happen. So I have to disagree with you there slightly, because what I don't think they foresaw was the intervention of politicians in the way that we did we did see. So Boris Johnson comes out very quickly. You know, he's saying, I will use a legislative bomb to stop this from happening. He was saying, I will, you know, impose potentially new legislation. He didn't say this explicitly. That was, you know, that's the pretext, or the pretext, the subtext. I will impose legislation whereby you would lose equity in these football clubs because he would introduce something like 50 plus one in, in Germany, where actually fans have majority of equity in the football clubs, effectively expropriation. Now, that may just have been rhetorical, but if you're Abramovich or if you're, you know, uh, you know, the shakes at the top of Manchester City, you think, I don't need this, right? This is a really valuable asset. I don't need this. You've got the, you've got a bidding war, bidding war almost between the leader of the opposition, the prime minister about who can sort of bring football back to the people. You've got Prince William tweeting about how it's not acceptable. And I think at a certain point, those kinds of political interventions probably did rattle people. And even yesterday, you saw it in the statement that came out from Manchester United. There's been pushback from fans, from from players. And I think they did say explicitly from, from government. And I think the government bit was the bit they didn't expect. And, and this is folded in the way that it has because of the six English clubs. Not because, you know, they're so, you know, wonderful and they're so much more enlightened than the other clubs. But for two reasons, really. Firstly, the Premier League is already very lucrative. 
You know, AC Milan, Inter Milan, Juventus need this a lot more than the English clubs do. Their debt piles aren't quite as big, but at the same time, you know, they're not making as much money as they would like. Secondly, what was super interesting was that the, the fans most opposed to this tended to be fans of English clubs. And the only club whose fans supported the European Super League, and by a tiny slither of majority, was Juventus, like 52-48. But for all the English clubs, you know, it was a tiny minority that wanted this whatsoever. So I think the absence of consent from fans, the intervention of politicians, and the fact that the Premier League is already so lucrative, I don't think the incentives lined up for them. Even though some clubs really did need this to happen. They looked at the European Super League as a kind of bailout. Manchester United and Tottenham in particular are facing massive, massive debt piles and they really need this to happen because, you know, the Champions League is not bringing in enough money for them to kind of continue as they are. Same applies to Real Madrid, which is why Florentino Perez has been the kind of the driving force with this whole thing. So many dynamics at work. But what's really instructive is that the two English clubs that broke first were Manchester City and Chelsea. And of course, they're the two clubs that are sort of independently wealthy. You know, they're not based on shareholders and debt leverage buyouts and loans from JP Morgan. They're owned by, well, one's, you know, an astronomically wealthy Russian oil oligarch. The other one is a sheikh, uh, you know, from the Arabian Peninsula, effectively a sovereign state that's involved in Manchester City, like with Paris Saint-Germain. So there are a lot of dynamics at work. Uh, and I think that's why that's why the English clubs, you know, pulled away first. And the the moment the weakest links fell, the whole edifice crumbled. Right, the moment Manchester City and Chelsea, who didn't really need it, dropped out, the whole thing fell apart. Apparently, Chelsea and Man City weren't that keen to sign up in the first place. They were incredibly angry um, at the other clubs who'd launched it because. I think, I mean, the subtext for me seemed to be that they assumed that those clubs had kind of sorted out some sequence of events that would make this thing actually happen. They signed up because they didn't want to be left out of it. And they assumed that the Manchester United's and the Juventus's and the Real Madrid's had sort of worked out a way to make this work. And they clearly hadn't. Uh, I want to focus on the players for a second. Um, we showed you a couple of clips of Petr Cech and James Milner. Um, they weren't the only players to speak out against this before um, the whole thing collapsed. Um, Manchester United's Marcus Rashford tweeted um, at two in the afternoon on Tuesday um, uh, this image which says, football is nothing without fans. It's a quote from Sir Matt Busby. And then Liverpool players put out this collective statement at 9pm. So this was a statement they all agreed with each other. We don't like it and we don't want it to happen. This is our collective position. Our commitment to this football club and its supporters is absolute and unconditional. You'll never walk alone. Aaron, you've sort of said, you know, that the politicians getting involved was one of the unforeseen things by the by the owners. I mean, I think they probably could have foreseen that because, you know, if the fans hate it, the players hate it, the managers hate it, then there's a real opportunity for politicians to, to come in and, and also hate it. The collective action among players was really interesting because I think what many people assumed was, look, these these people won't bite the hand that feeds them. They're essentially paid by, um, well, either these oligarchs or these businessmen who, who wanted to join the Super League, but they came out and felt able and willing to speak out against it. Were you surprised at how, I suppose, vocal players and managers were? Yeah, that's super interesting. And again, that's another, you know, stakeholder, uh, which which wasn't consulted. And I, I think you're right. I think, you know, that they certainly wouldn't have seen what has happened. I think a lot of it does boil down to changes in technology. And I think particularly with the Glazers, you know, Manchester United was purchased by Malcolm Glazer. He completed the purchase of Manchester United in 2005. 
and that you know presage huge pro huge process massive process the biggest process that you know i think to this day i think they're the biggest process we've seen in in sort of elite english football i could be wrong maybe i'm forgetting something but i think they're the big they were just giant protests you know a whole new club you know um, fc united was founded out of out of those protests and and it's a perfectly successful you know uh sort of non-league club it's, it's doing pretty well lower down the football pyramid and i think well they thought 2005 yeah there was loads of kickback but ultimately we, we managed to get through that and we bought a club for 800 million it's now worth 4 billion you know that was definitely a win for us we've taken a billion pounds out of the club ever since you know uh we managed to buy it with loans guaranteed against the assets of the club we were buying wow I mean, it's almost criminal when you think about the Glazers purchase of Manchester United, but you know they, they managed to get through it. And I, I presume there was a sort of a recency bias, right? Which is the last time we did something this absurd, we got away with it, and it was very lucrative for us. So why will this time be any different? Well, this time is different because I think of technology, social media, and I think the players lost their inhibitions because they saw Twitter, they saw Instagram. And then, of course, you're seeing television, and it helps that you know Sky had a vested interest in screwing this up. Probably, I mean, maybe not. I mean, maybe Sky would have, you know, still bid for the TV rights. I don't, you know, I don't know. The people have said that, but I, that's difficult to qualify. But they certainly didn't want it to go ahead. And so you've got on Monday Night Football, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, who are very established figures in football punditry saying these things you've got bbc pundits saying something similar on sunday night so if you're a player you're looking at the pundits you're looking at the fans you're just getting abuse on your instagram account whenever you sort of say it or do anything and so i think that does take the inhibitions away and it's a very different context 2005 pre-social media you know pre pre-youtube pre-twitter pre-instagram and, and again i think that's where the glazers fell apart and people say well, well surely they foresaw this you know i i I think we really shouldn't overestimate the extent to which these people are detached from reality. The Glazers look at Manchester United. I can't speak for John Henry in Liverpool or any of the others. I think John Henry actually doesn't apply to him whatsoever. He did a, a relatively impressive, I think the bare minimum groveling apology, you know, but he's the only one to really do that. But the Glazers are completely detached from reality. They are American. They are the children, the princelings of an American sports billionaire who really don't know their ass from their elbow, never worked a day in their lives and look at this football club like a piggy bank. And they thought that this deal with the Super League would make that piggy bank even bigger. And I think their eyes grew bigger than their their capacity to, to fight this fight. Their father was around the last time he wasn't now. So a bunch of things at work. But I, I think the big, big, big one is how we conduct these debates. The capacity for collective action growing out of social media just wasn't there 15 years ago. And it makes you think, you know, would the Glazers have been able to buy Manchester United in 2005? I would wager after the last week, looking at what's happened, no, they would not. The European Super League might have been short-lived, but could the failed attempt by a group of billionaires to steal football cast a longer shadow? Could it spark a wider backlash against the plutocrats who own England's football clubs and lead to reform of club ownership? Now, I'd imagine a lot of that will defend, depend on where the efforts of a newly energised fandom goes after this win. And Chelsea fans, at least, have got a lot of momentum. Here they are protesting the league and then celebrating, protesting the Super League, and then celebrating its downfall. We've just made history! We've just made history! We've just made history! We've just made history!
Now, the experience of, I suppose, mass mobilization and then winning can be quite radicalizing. And Aaron, what I want to know from you is, you know, what did you make of those scenes? Like quite, you know, seemingly reasonably well-organized protests. Um, and within 48 hours, they've got what they've wanted. Will they be going on next to completely transform the ownership model of, of English football? No, I suspect not. One thing I would say is that at first glance, I didn't realise this, but now on, you know, in the subsequent days, looking at pictures of the protests, particularly Chelsea yesterday, the people there were incredibly young, shockingly, shockingly young. And so what I, what I think this could sort of speak to is the fact that you are looking at newer generations of football fans priced out of the game, can't afford tickets, can't afford all the merchandise, just as passionate about it as their parents, their grandparents, previous generations. And, you know, that they want change in the game. So I think that's definitely true. But the idea there's now is sort of this sudden, this sudden mass that wants fan ownership. I don't think it's correct. Because if you ask the average Chelsea fan, are they happy with what Roman Abramovich has achieved in that club in the last 17, 18 years since he's owned it? They would say yes. If you ask the average Man City fan, are you happy with what, you know, Sheikh Mansour has, has, has achieved since he's been there? They would say yes. You know, before Roman Abramovich, Chelsea had won a single championship in this country i think it was in 1955 they won the old first division since then they won the european cup you know they won the europa league the league cup fa cup multiple times etc they, they've had the the biggest period of protracted success in their history under abramovich so i don't think city and chelsea fans want big money out of football because they're really happy with how things are working out right now where i think it's different is with manchester united because what you had there before before the glazers was almost uniquely, in fact, a very profitable football club, the biggest stadium in England, state of the art, you know, uh, huge business, hugely profitable, but most importantly, hugely successful on the pitch. And actually, in 15 years, the Glazers have, you know, for want of a better word, fucked that up completely. They've taken out a billion pounds. They've not made any changes to Old Trafford. It's actually a bit of a state of disrepair now. It used to be a world-class stadium. Now, when you compare it to what what you've got, for instance, with Tottenham, what you've got with Arsenal, with Liverpool, it's kind of looking quite run-of-the-mill, frankly. Chelsea, it's looking, frankly, you know, run-of-the-mill. And so I think Man, Man United fans in particular would find the 50 plus one model very alluring because they've seen, the, you know, the worst, most egregious consequences of billionaire ownership uh, at a football club. They've not just, you know, had a had a very profitable team get into loads of debt. Football fans don't really care about that stuff. But it's hugely impacted what's happened on the pitch, massively, massively. And of course, it's a very different story for, for Manchester City and for Chelsea. I, I do think they aren't alone. I think there are a bunch of clubs. You've got Manchester United. You've got other teams that have experienced these kind of cowboy owners. Portsmouth is another one, was fan-owned a couple of years ago. Brought, fans brought Portsmouth out of administration. And so I think you've probably got 10, 15 clubs across the country where fans, the supporters trust, the wider sort of support base would say, yes, we want fan ownership. Does that apply, you know, across every team, across every every league? No. I think for most sort of support bases, the dream is a guy worth three, four hundred million pounds and decided to spend it all on their team. Like you saw with Jack Walker and Blackburn or Sir John Hall uh, at Blackburn and, and Newcastle at the end of the 20th century. That remains their dream rather than fan ownership. But there is clearly a growing demand, particularly amongst younger supporters. They look at the kind of the consistency, the sustained success of Bayern Munich, of Borussia Dortmund, of Ajax Amsterdam. And they say, you know what? We, we want our clubs to run like that. Cheap tickets to get to watch the game. 
a sustainable business model and actually putting fans first. It's not quite at the tipping point, but I think it could be. And I think this new demographic of football fans could be the ones that push it over the edge. I know it's so naive, but this whole Super League thing just... It just floors me how under capitalism, there is literally never enough money. Um, mm. There is never an opportunity to concentrate wealth that will be missed. Like it is literally insatiable. These are some of the wealthiest institutions out there. And yet, you know, they were willing to sacrifice such a reputation, all of this reputation, the, 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 the buy-in and loyalty of their fans, just in order to kind of concentrate wealth and power even further. And it also showed me how quickly um, something that is organized by powerful people and seems to be set in stone can be defeated when the media isn't cock blocking you. Like when the, mm. when the app, when the media, when you have this kind of like, and I guess, you know, that is the nature of the media. So we can't kind of imagine a world in which the media aren't normally on our, are normally on our side, but it just goes to show how powerful the media being on site is in mm. making these kinds of things happen. Um, but, you know, I think that for me, what this is so, you know, what this is so kind of interesting that is, and why I think it's maybe galvanized people so much is because, you know, when you look at sort of, from what I know of the history of football, um, that this is sort of, this attempt to do the Super League was kind of a too much, too fast, accelerated stage in what has been a very long trend um, of the movement of football from a kind of more local uh, working class, you know, locally enjoyed sport to this sort of multi-billion dollar industry controlled by people who have no interest or access or relationship to the communities that the football clubs are named after, um, which is oriented around finance capital and um, which is becoming increasingly inaccessible to the very people that sort of make the sport happen um, in terms of, you know, the fans. And that story um, is the story of so many other things in our society, right? It's it's the, not to romanticize the past, but it kind of registers this shift that we've recognized in so many parts of our lives from, you know, political system, education system, healthcare, et cetera. This intensification of inequality, this concentration and endless, endless need to concentrate even further resources and power into the hands of an ever decreasing minority at the expense of an increasingly dispossessed majority. So I think that's why it ignited such a response because it felt like a tangible sort of specific stand-in for so many of the other broader issues that we are facing, but perhaps feel more complex or mystified or inaccessible in exactly the way that that, that they work. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's good to see our side kind of win, I guess, um, not to sort of romanticize the Premier League um, and stuff. But, you know, there's so many things in here. You know, there's the issue of corporate ownership. There's the undermining of local political autonomy, the undermining of community. And I even think there's a really interesting question to be had here about alternative models of ownership. So, you know, we often think that the, the only two options are, you know, corporate ownership or state ownership. And the conversations that we're now having about, you know, fan ownership of these clubs does, you know, introduce that other angle of, of what can it mean to have to have public ownership that means something very different? How would decision making work in that context? So it's an experiment in public imagining that um, if we can harness it could be, you know, a really like interesting political education moment.
you say how these, this could be an, a model because in Germany, where you do have fan ownership of football teams, you do also have co-determination in firms. So it's normal to have workers on boards. It's normal mm. to have fans on boards in football teams. So it could be the case that if pressure brings through some reforms to to footballing, that could extend to to other sectors of the economy. And um, before I go back to you, Aaron, I want um, to show a couple more clips. You said um, the people who should be, you know, living in most fear right now um, of you know losing some of their assets um, are the Glazers, the owners of Manchester United. And Gary Neville, who, I mean, has done really well over the past four days, I think we all have to agree, has now turned his guns towards the Glazers. Let's take a look. Edward Wood is the trunk of the tree. We now need to go for the roots because I said last night I felt complicit. They've declared their hand while they were peacefully sat at the club, not making a statement, never showing their hands, never doing media conferences. Yeah, they were taking money out of the club. Yes, they've leveraged against the club. There's nothing that we could do about that once the club became a PLC. But they, I said last night they attacked every single football fan in this country with what they did. And Jamie's just talked about FSG having no place in Liverpool. The Glazers have no place in Manchester anymore. And we have to work hard together to ensure that ownership rules in this country are changed, that we have a system whereby this cannot happen, whether that is good government intervention, independent regulator, whether it be a fan-owned club rule, whatever it is, we have to make sure that this is the catalyst for change. And the people have spoken. We were on the brink of anarchy if this continued. The Chelsea fans that have turned up tonight, the Leeds and Liverpool fans who turned up last night, the social media presence... And these six sets of owners in this country, and obviously the other ones in Europe, have misread this situation badly. Very, very persuasive. And he, yeah, talking about alternative models of ownership for for football, which I think probably could extend to other forms of, of the country if it's demonstrated to work, as it has been demonstrated to work in, for example, Germany. That was Gary Neville pushing for a change of ownership among the football teams. What about the owners themselves? Uh, they haven't been as as noisy as others over the past few days. They've mainly had their tail between their legs. John W. Henry, who is Liverpool's American billionaire owner, has come out in the public and explained what went on. And basically, he's sounding very apologetic. I want to apologize to all the fan supporters of Liverpool Football Club for the disruption I caused over the past 48 hours. Goes without saying, but should be said, that the project put forward was never going to stand without the support of the fans. No one ever thought differently in England. Over these 48 hours, you were very clear that it would not stand. We heard you. I heard you. And I want to apologize to Jurgen, to Billy, to the players, and to everyone who worked so hard at LFC to make our fans proud. They have absolutely no responsibility for this disruption. They were the most disrupted, and unfairly so. This is what hurts most. They love your club and work to make you proud every single day. I know the entire LFC team has the expertise, leadership, and passion necessary to rebuild trust and help us move forward. How pathetic was that statement and how duplicitous was it? He was saying, we, we always knew we wouldn't be able to do this with the fans. Uh, they announced this 
at midnight on a Sunday with no consultation with anyone, not the players, not the managers, not the fans, and they thought they could use coronavirus as an opportunity to do it because no one was in the stands, no one was allowed to attend the matches anyway. And then, you know, the fans and the players and the managers were... Um, I suppose inventive enough to actually effectively campaign against this and now suddenly they're saying oh no ooh, we never meant to upset you you knew you'd upset them but you thought you could win and you'd lost and now you're humiliated publicly and I mean to be honest I think I think he knew he was humiliated there although he's a billionaire in America very far away he probably doesn't care that much Aaron do you think a genie has been let out of the bottle here I mean John W Henry clearly thinks he can rebuild some kind of trust with Liverpool with the fans, the players, the manager, seems difficult for that to happen. Once you've tried to attempt to do this and you've failed, I mean, how do you crawl back from that? You can't. And I, I think the fact that he thinks he can apologise and make amends shows he still doesn't understand the gravity of what he's just done. He still doesn't get it. Liverpool Football Club is the most successful English club in European competition. They've won, they've won six European championships. And that is the basis of that club. It's the, the memories of those victories, those triumphs with Ken Aglish, Graham Sinesse, Bruce Grobbler doing the, you know, the crazy legs in Rome, Istanbul when they came back against AC Milan. It's those memories that kids share with their parents, with their grandparents they pass on. That's what binds that community together. And what the Super League effectively was, was saying, you know what? That doesn't mean anything. The European Championships, the, the European Cup, the Champions League since 1992, those triumphs don't mean anything. This thing which gives you the most pride and satisfaction as a Liverpool supporter are meaningless. We're going to create a whole new competition independent of UEFA, right? And, of course, they were trying to present it as a, a, a continuation of the Champions League. But if UEFA carried on run, running the Champions League, I mean, it's, it's not going to be, is it? And... That I don't, I don't think will ever be forgiven. If you look at Manchester United, you know, Sir Matt Busby, the second greatest manager in Manchester United history, but, you know, after Sir Alex Ferguson, what he did with that club was phenomenal. He came to a club after the Second World War. Old Trafford had literally been bombed, right? They used to have to play games at Main, at Main Road, Manchester City's old stadium, because there was, there was, they'd been bombing of the old ground of Old Trafford. And from there, he built a team through to the late 1950s, the Busby Babes, who were on the cusp of winning the European Cup at the time, 1957-58. And Celtic were the first British club to win it in 1967. They were, they were looking to do that nine years earlier. And, of course, that tragically never happened because there was the Munich Air disaster and these young men, I mean, it was a few, you know, other women as well. It wasn't just footballers, it was support staff. Hugely tragic, but principally the focus was on the fact that I think you had three or four England internationals die and they were in their early 20s. I'm one of the biggest comeback stories in the history of sport. I mean, it's phenomenal. I'm, the fact it's never been made into a film shows you how little Americans understand about European football <laughs> is because it is the greatest comeback story of all time. This guy who literally helped to build the club from the ruins of the Second World War. He then goes through Munich. He then in hospital, his wife sees him. He says, I don't think I can come back to this. She says, I think the boys that have gone would want you to. And 1968, he wins the European Cup with a whole new team. Right. And that history is there for Manchester United fans forever. And Joel Glazer and Ed Woodward basically shat on it. They basically said that doesn't mean anything. Or Solskjaer and Sheringham in 1999 in the last two minutes against Bayern Munich and Barcelona. That's meaningless because we've got this new comp competition, which allows us to drain even more money out of this club, which we've already parasitized for 15 years. So, no, they're never going to be forgiven because the most important thing to these fans is that history. 
That's all they've got. That's all the football is. It's the memories, right? It's the sort of the shared stories and the narratives, bringing people together. Oh, I remember this, this player. Who was better? Was Ken Daglish better or was, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, Salah, right? Mo Salah or, or Kenny Daglish or who was the better goalkeeper, Bruce Grobola or Alisson? These are the, the, the silly debates and the memories that, you know, they're intergenerational. And that was just, you know, disregarded by these people. I could go on to other clubs. I, I won't. You know, AC Milan, another beautiful European history, complete disregard, just kind of forgotten by these owners who've come from nowhere. And so I think principally they will never be forgiven. And I, I think particularly the American owners just don't get what European football culture is about, which is that you don't have a Western conference and an Eastern conference and nobody can get relegated. And we have the same leagues every year. Because, by the way, if you did the European Super League 60, 70 years ago, you know, the teams that would be in contention would be like Blackpool and Everton and uh, Portsmouth won two back-to-back titles after the Second World War. You go further back, Newcastle, Sunderland. Point is, in English football over the years, maybe that stopped, we don't know. But we've had, you know, teams have come and gone. Even even 30 years ago, it would have been Newcastle and Blackburn with the big challenges to Manchester United. Nobody's saying you should be in the Super League. Nottingham Forest have won two European Cups, more than Arsenal and Tottenham put together. Nobody's saying they should be in the Super League because, you know, teams rise and fall. That's life. And I think that was lost on these Americans. Uh, and, you know, I'll finish with this. Stan Kroenke, who's the owner of Arsenal, he's the owner of the LA Rams, which is, I believe, an American football team, or a, I think it's an American football team. I don't really care. I don't really like American sports. Here's uh, <laughs> the remarkable thing, right? And this, you, you, you'll know this, our viewers will know this. You know, you get these American teams, they were the St. Louis Rams, and now they're the LA Rams. And you can just move a team from one city to another, kind of completely ahistorical. Well, if it makes money, if it's the right business decision, you know, in an ideal world for Joel Glazer and for and for and for Stan Kroenke, you know, if, if it meant they could make money by turning Manchester United into the kind of into the Tokyo Red Devils, they'd do it. If Stan Kroenke could turn Arsenal into the St. Petersburg Gunners, he'd do it. Right? That's that's how that's the that's the sporting culture they come from. Because of course, American culture is utterly saturated in in capitalist ideology. I mean, obviously, right? It's the heartland of modern of modern capitalism. The idea that everything is subordinated to profit and 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 commodification. In this country, that hasn't happened to the same extent. And so people go, "What? What the hell are you doing? There's history here. There's meaning here. You know, there's there's tradition here. You have to respect some of it. We don't mind you coming here, like Sheikh Mansour and Abramovich, and you can spend a load of money and help us do really well on the pitch. But you, you can't you can't you can't change the fundamentals. And actually. Yeah, we'll talk about fan ownership, but there's an interesting thing you get with Portsmouth, which is they were taken over by the fans when they went into administration uh, after some very dodgy owners. I mean, literally criminal owners. And I'm, I'm not saying that lightly. There was criminal charges and they were found guilty and so on. <laughs> no, the, the producer Fox doesn't need to worry about me being legal here. <laughs> and and the fans bought the club and, of course, they sold it because, you know, running a football club is a really tough thing, you know, whatever. But what they did do is they had something called, I think it's called a legacy share, which is basically that the owners can never change the name of the, the, the stadium. They can't move the stadium. They can't change the color of the kit. Fans have to be consulted on, you know, really large decisions. And I think at the very least, even if you don't believe in 50 plus one, and I do, I think, I think fans are such a major stakeholder in the game. They should at least have 10, 20% equity in a club. And they should at least be at the table when these decisions are made about something like a European Super League or the Premier League. Clearly, because you don't have football clubs like the fans. Clearly, they are a stakeholder. So supporters trust, and I, I think supporters trust 
whether it's the top of the Premier League or the bottom of League Two, should have equity in those football clubs. For now, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on a Wednesday. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, being joined by you on a Wednesday, Dahlia. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media this evening. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.